Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby, and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, um, we have Reed Vero also in the house, and we have a veteran guest tonight, Dr. Sarah Ann Anderson Burnett. She is a health equity educator and advocate and addiction neuroscientist and also Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine Fellow at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. With that uh, said, we are going to be talking about pediatric depression um, and depression in adolescence uh, and even suicide during this this difficult time uh, and era of COVID-19. This is actually inspired by some uh, recent tragedy, ladies and gentlemen, um, sort of personal tragedy. And so that's why we're delving into this topic, you know, really hardcore. And uh, Dr. Anderson Burnett, I want to thank you for joining us and just, you know, being willing to really get some good information out there about this, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to awareness of what's happening. Definitely. Thank you for having me again. Veteran guest. That's wild. But yes, I am. <laughs> oh, which is, <laughs> uh, so yeah, welcome back. And, you know, let's just jump right in, really, because uh, where we are in this pandemic, what have we seen sort of over the last uh, year from the time that this all started to where we are now? I mean, this is something that I think is is pretty, pretty apparent in our society that we know this is a problem and that our children are being significantly impacted. Uh, but what have you seen from the start of this crisis to now as far as where we are um, re- regarding the mental health effects on our children? Yeah, I think one of the most important things to know is that during this crisis, in order to prevent a public health issue and tragedy is really to shelter in place. And it was the importance of sheltering in place and staying away from others. But by doing that, there's actually can be detrimental effects to one's wellness and welfare. And then you and I feel as if the teens and kids had to find innovative ways to stay connected. A sense of connectedness is such a key important point in one's adolescent development and their I their formation of their like identity and individuation. Um, and when that connectedness is abruptly ended or disconnected, it really can lead to some pretty um, hard outcomes for these teens. And as they're growing and learning about resilience, they're still in that process. They're still under construction. And as I always think of the teenage brain as like a big under construction sign on there because that's truly what's happening to it from a neurologic standpoint, but also emotionally in development. And so I think at the beginning of this pandemic, it was so novel. The idea was that it would be short-lived. And so there was this optimism of the end of the road, a month down the road, two months down the road. But as the information came in, as we saw just the tragic um, deaths and the tragic impact, even just the morbidity from all of the, um, the, from COVID, we also saw that there was going to be a longer road and the planning and the forethought of keeping children in mind and their wellness in mind wasn't necessarily there. And I think, unfortunately, due to that poor planning and, and the focus and not as much investment in children's overall wellness and their mental health, it really has led to some pretty high spikes in depression, very high spikes in anxiety. Uh, in my practice, I see 
so much more anxiety than I did before. I do think there is a high baseline level of anxiety within the within teenagers, but I really have seen it spike and patients having panic attacks um, and, and asking for what can we do. And like really the panic attacks are so overwhelming that some of the patients are just hoping that they could just not wake up the next morning. And so we, we think about different ways of how a person could think about ending their life and one way is called passive suicidal ideation. And that's the idea of this. I wish I didn't wake up in the morning. I wish something would happen happen to me so it would end my life and I don't have to suffer anymore. And then we think of ways like active suicidal ideation. So active ways of thinking of ending your life. And those would include like you doing an actual action to end your life. And so I've seen those numbers spike as well. And the data also supports that. And particularly we're seeing that it correlates with places where there's heightened anxiety, heightened awareness from the government level about sheltering in place or different other restrictions. There's higher levels of anxiety within the teens and higher levels of teens that come into emergency departments for suicide, um, suicidal thoughts. And so when we look at uh, these areas, I guess, where you said that um, there the spikes might be a little bit greatest in areas where we have sort of these shelter in place uh, rules or policies. Mm-hmm. So would that translate to, let's say, in uh, uh, New York City versus down south um, right. or, or certain uh, states where these these rules are not as a parent, we're seeing upticks in those areas as far as children, you know, being treated or diagnosed with anxiety disorders? So based on the preliminary data that we have now, that is the case. Um, and so I think there, there, there are risk, it's a risk benefit assessment. Um, and keeping that in mind, if there are going to be ways in which children and teens are going to be separated from those social networks that really drive them, then we need to think of ways that we can keep them connected. Although social media can often be vilified and it can be utilized in ways that are are detrimental to the health of youth, they also can be, social media networks can also be leveraged as a positive motivational force and as a connection and as a source for connection. And so I think if we can support our um, adolescents um, through that, I think that's important. And so, I you know I I worry because I I honestly the the numbers I'm seeing here are are really troubling. And I you know at one point in my practice I would see a a, a, a teenager maybe once every three or four weeks um, with like true active suicidal thoughts where I would have to send them to the emergency department because I was fearful. Um, and it has now now actually come every one to two weeks that I'm doing that. That's really like troublesome, troubling to me. So, how else is this sort of being manifest uh, aside from uh, these thoughts of suicide, whether it's passive or active? How else is this being manifest in uh, adolescence as far as the anxiety and even mm-hmm. uh, emotional disturbances, uh, symptoms of emo- emotional disturbance? A lot of so, one of the key ways is um, poor engagement with school. So moving to remote learning can be very difficult in general. And also just there's the great internet divide, right? So it really comes down to principles of health equity um, and socioeconomic equity. And so there are people that don't have access to the internet, people that don't have access to actual computers or iPads or actual devices to do their work. And um, you see that manifest in students failing out. And then you see some states in which students are actually being penalized for not being on um actually like not being engaged in their classes or being part of their classes um, and really like penalized to the point of like actual legal involvement. So there are like stressors that are adding upon themselves. It, it would it would be different if it was just like a simple stressor that can then manifest as anxiety, but it's coming in so many different ways. I see it with like school failure. I see it with um, patients who now are like exploring more online dating, seeking other sources to actually find connection. Um, another source that I had to, I have to actually screen for a little bit more actively now is that some of my younger patients are playing on, um, on like video games, Fortnite, different things like that. And, you know, you can talk with people and connect with people and they'll connecting with adults and older people that are a little bit more concerning people that shouldn't be engaging with these children in this way and, you know, using racial epithets towards them, sexual, sexual uh, words, different things like that. So there, there's, 
different ways that people might, adolescents and kids might be seeking out social networking connection that can be like, they're not healthy. And so I think when we're looking at, you know, some of our patients were saying, okay, how are you feeling? What are you experiencing? Particularly adolescent doctors, we like to ask about all of the psychosocial elements that include things like drug use. I'm seeing a huge spike in cannabis use um, by teens. Um, and that's concerning because when you're asking, like, what is this experience for you? Because we're not, as physicians, my job is not to judge you for smoking or using drugs, but to understand what that experience does for you. And if you're telling me that you're using more now because it's anxiety, you're worried, you don't want to leave the house. Now I'm concerned that this is something that's you're using this to self-medicate and that we need to be able to provide you with other resources to help you do this in a more healthy manner. So just thinking of options, but looking at how they're presenting, it's very variable, but I would say anxiety, school failures, um, increased drug use, and searching for connection in perhaps environments that are not conducive for teens, um, a healthy for teens have been the um, elements that I've seen. And as far as um, sort of behavioral changes, are we seeing that as well as far as like anger outbursts or mm-hmm. um, on the other hand, w- withdrawal in some ways from, uh, um, you know, family, I guess, in terms of their interactions and things? Are we, are we still seeing sort of those? Because I know that those were um, some of the more common symptoms we would see when a child was maybe experiencing some anxiety or any sort of emotional disturbance. Definitely seeing what we describe as like mood lability. So what's mood swings, right? Just kind of going back and forth, these angry outbursts, because some, as I mentioned, they're still growing. And so the ability to articulate their feelings, their emotions, and particularly if you grew up in an environment that is trauma induced or trauma informed in a way, um, your ability to discuss your emotions, your ability to interact with your family in a way to say, I don't feel comfortable right now, may not have been something that your parents or your guardians or whoever you're living with learned, right? So they may not have created an environment for you to even talk about what you're experiencing. So that's where you see things like you mentioned, like withdrawal, because it's like, who do I speak to? Who's my resources? Uh, an example I have, I had a patient who really already had family tensions pre-COVID and post-COVID really could not figure out who to talk to, but was so desperate she walked during the snowstorm to our clinic to actually be like, I need help, which is huge, right? To have to have her to actually have the insight to say, I need help and I'm not getting it at home was big. But that is not a common, you know, reaction. And so unfortunately you will see withdrawal. You'll see anger because it's like you don't understand me. And it's almost like it's hard for people to understand, but it's almost like a toddler. Right. Like the toddler's like, I'm speaking, you don't get it. And now I'm going to fall out. I'm going to have a temper tantrum. I'm going to express myself in a way that shows you I'm angry that I'm upset. And teenagers can often respond that same way. So I think it's important to be able to see some of those concerning alarm signs um, in the in the teens and kids that we are dealing with. And so what are the behaviors that we would say are at this stage? I guess we would say good coping mechanisms or ways in which, you know, children have successfully successfully sort of navigated these challenges at this point. What are, because, you know, the reason why I ask that question is because when we look at, for instance, the use of, uh, let's say, some of the technology that we have, which is fantastic, right? The fact that I can see you right now, I can see, read, talk, like this is something that if this happened pre, like I can't imagine the trouble we would have been in, right? Um, as adolescents without technology like this. And so like, you know, for instance, with my, my self and my wife, like we've seen this as very advantageous in having this type of technology, as you said, even right, just in terms, we got to be mindful of that digital mm-hmm. divide, right? Um, uh, families that are not able to get online are not able to engage in this technology. Mm-hmm. They are already, as we know, at a significant disadvantage. But I do think that there are some people out there like, hey, this is great. You know, my child is sort of um, on Zoom engaging with, with family and friends or on the other hand, maybe they are playing Fortnite. Right. Um, at what point does this sort of can we tip the balance and it starts to become unhealthy? Because you did say that there's that sort of balance right with social media or using this type of technology. Right. At what point do we have to sort of, um, you know, look really closely and see whether or not uh, this is a healthy coping mechanism? 
Right. I mean, I think transitioning to online and how to do it in a healthy, effective way is just an unknown territory. And it was an area that wasn't invested in pre-COVID, even though honestly it should have been. Um, it just wasn't. And so what we're seeing is kids coming in with like new onset migraines, but it's really, really too much stimulus from blue light from the, the computer screen. Um, and yeah. so like even like telling my kids to go on Amazon and get blue light blocking glasses actually has made a huge difference. Honestly, it's made a huge difference even with my husband. Like, it's very funny to me because it's just one of these things that no one would ever have conceptualized beforehand. And so I feel as if, like, right, like, you're just like, oh, I should do that. Um, I think, you know, when we think about how to help our um, our adolescents and teens engage better with technology, it, it kind of... I think for some parents, it's uncomfortable, right? It's an area that they may not be able to navigate and are feel, you know, completely savvy with. And so really a lot of the times when it comes to the technology that's available, how people are engaging with other, with their friends, with their other peer groups, it's actually the kids teaching the parents, right? And I think mm -hmm. that's the part, like what's the resource that a parent can go to to understand what Snapchat is, what TikTok is, what are all of these other ways? Because you know, it was funny, like when the pandemic started, nobody really in our, like none of our pediatricians knew what TikTok was. And then you ask the kids, hey, so like, what do you do for fun? How do you engage with people online? They're like, oh, I learned how to cook off of TikTok. And I'm like, you can learn how to cook off of TikTok? I we're short. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm confused. Explain all of this to me, right? I think, you know, honestly, finding the ways that they enjoy the internet and the ways that they are engaging with people, under talking to them and understanding what has been a good experience for them and what has been a bad experience. There has to be a level of transparency and acceptance um, for adolescents, because I think what happens is sometimes because some parents are so worried about the internet and for like good reason, they mm -hmm. can become defensive and they can kind of shut down. But the problem is during adolescence, if as a parent you shut down, you're now then cutting off one of their key protective factors when it comes to think things like triggers of mental illness. And so I think parents being receptive to the concepts and the different ideas and the different platforms and the different ways to engage are absolutely critical um, for adolescent patients. And I you know, I often talk to parents about that. Like there have been patients that I've definitely engaged in just like behaviors that were concerning. And I had, you know, we definitely had to have a discussion of how do you navigate that? Because so often everybody's like, I'll take away the phone. Everybody will find a different way. You gave them an iPad for school, they'll, you, they'll get on those platforms through it some, right. some other way, right? So that kind of punitive measures don't, doesn't always work. But talking to them about what are the possible outcomes and, and circumstances that can arise from engaging with certain type of people on social media is important. Or if somebody's being bullied, how do you actually allow, how do you guide them through that? I often, I read this parenting book um, because I'm a newer parent and I'm trying to understand myself. And they said something mm -hmm. interesting. They said from ages one to six, you're governing, right? You're teaching them rules and how kind of like, what are the safe ways to try to abide in the world? From ages six to 12, you're gardening. You're helping them bloom and understand who they are as individuals. But from ages 12 on, you're really guiding, right? Because they formed their sense of self and now you're guiding them to really kind of blossom into the true person that they're going to be. But you can't force them. You can't govern them anymore. You can't, you can pour into them, but they're going to just need guidance. And so I think that's um, an approach that can be considered by parents when dealing with teens and how they engage with their peer networks online. As a, a you know, parent sort of navigating all of this, I think one thing that we really ought to be mindful of is like how we contribute to this. Um, and this is obviously pre-COVID, right? Just sort of the way that we handle things around the house, the way that we sort of handle work and, and home life, um, some of this uh, anxiety, some of the emotional distress that even adults are under, right, can be translated mm -hmm. to children. So yeah. Uh, yeah. what have you seen in that regard as far as um, uh, parents and sort of this transmission of some of the stress that we're experiencing, especially with the uncertainty and financial stress? Um, what have you what are you seeing in that regard and also how is that being mitigated yeah i think 
you know, so often so many of us haven't had the, particularly in communities of color, haven't had the opportunity to go to a therapist, haven't had the opportunity to address some of our own dramas within our, our traumas within our family and outside of that. And that can really have an impact in how we interact with our own children and how we manage our children and how we decide to raise our children. And so I think there are so many ways of just kind of like that process for us, uh, for parents in general, on top of the fact of there's the extra stress of a pandemic that has now then led to socioeconomic distress is really bringing out some of, you know, like just some of the hardest parts of people's lives. And one of the things that I'm seeing more commonly is that so many of our patients are suffering from food insecurity. I've never seen food insecurity to the extent that I have um, since the pandemic has started. Rent insecurity, ironically, housing insecurity has been okay in New York City. I know that it's different in each state, but because there are so many um, laws in place to protect the tenant, luckily that has not been an issue as much with my patients. But the stress of actually having enough food getting to a supermarket and actually being able to pay for food has been very tremendous. And so there have been some things that have been going on within New York State where they've increased. Um, if you already were getting a supplement, um, like WIC supplementation, or you were getting uh, essentially what we call food stamps, they increased the amount on that so that you were getting more support to guide you through this time because this is, it's a really difficult time. There have been like a booming um, surge of community fridges, which I have found to be extraordinarily useful. Really, anybody can donate to the community fridge and anybody can take food out and nobody's looking. And it's, I think that has been amazing. And then a lot of the farm, um, kind of like the... Um, the CSAs and the farm to uh, like the farmers who have like lost a lot of business due to restaurants closing have been actually reshuffling a lot of their produce to like different nonprofits that have been giving them away throughout the city, like City Harvest. So it's actually that those are amazing ways that have been helping with the actual food insecurity part, because that in itself is a key stressor. And one thing I did not mention earlier that has been a very interesting thing is during this pandemic, children and adolescents figure out how to deal with stress differently. Sometimes one way of dealing with stress is trying to control your environment as much as possible. And the anxiety is like, if I control things, then I can actually, you know, cope better. And one way that can manifest actually is in different types of eating disorders. So across the country, there have been a huge surge in eating disorders amongst teens. It's the probably one of the biggest surges that we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years. And so much is the thought behind it is so much of it is secondary to actual stress and managing stress, using food as a way to manage stress. So some people are having eating disorders that are restricting how much they're eating as a result. Yep. So I have multiple patients I'm managing with that. And then there's some people that are binging. So the weight gain that I've seen in my patient population is skyrocketed and the pre-diabetes skyrocketing. And it, it's scary to me because some of that, you know, the the, those that are binge eating are not necessarily binge eating on produce per se, right? Because that access is not there. Instead, they're binge eating on what is easily accessible at a bodega that's going to be open 24 hours. And that is leading to more negative outcomes for their health in general. So it's interesting because it can manifest in so many different ways. Um, but really seeing the stressors on a, a parent trying to keep a household together has pretty profound downstream effects on the children. Giorgio Malou. Hi, Giorgio. Ladies and Hello, gentlemen, he, he joined us. Nice to see you um, again, Dr. Anderson. Nice to see you, too. Yeah, that's what's up. Like, literally, you can see each other, man. I'm just so impressed with this. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, you know, one thing, too, and that really goes with this is um, how do you feel or what do you recommend in terms of sharing these challenges with your children? Because especially when we talk about uh, adolescents, when we talk about teenagers, you know, I think sometimes we kind of see them as maybe the way I see my daughter, right? A four-year-old. Um, and we're trying to shield them from this stuff, right? The pandemic and sort of what we have to deal with um, as far as societal challenges and even challenges in our community, challenges in the home with regard to finances. And as you said, things like food insecurity. And we think, hey, they don't know what's going on. You know, everything. I'm just going to deal with this ourselves as the adults in the household. But they're super 
smart. Like my four-year-old clearly understands what's going on. She knows what's going on, right? Ask mm-hmm. questions, right? That force us to engage her, uh, her uh, um, in these challenges and explain to her. So how are there any strategies that we can employ in mm-hmm. discussing these challenges so that our children, right, can then sort of engage us in in talking about that and even potentially yeah. uh, uh, deal with that? Do you have any strategies in that regard? Or even is that something that you would recommend? So I definitely think it's important to allow a forum for your child to be able to approach you with questions or concerns. And I think, you know, with adolescent teens, they're going to be at different stages of development. So there's early adolescence, mid-adolescence, and later adolescence. With early adolescents, they are still young, um, and they're still trying to form their sense of self, their sense of autonomy. And they're going to be testing the waters, but they're trying to understand. And I think, you know, similar to your four-year-old, daughter like they want they may want to ask questions interestingly some younger adolescents are more apt to asking questions out of curiosity and maybe not understanding the context and so i think that's actually an optimal time to talk about you know if there are struggles within the home it's no need to detail what the stressors are what the struggles are but to really say you know I know you have seen that mom and dad or our, both of your parents are actually stressed. And this, you know, these it's stressful. It's a stressful time because we're not able to see our grandparents. We're not able to do this. But being able to openly discuss that, because what happens is kids understand and sense energy and see it in your face and they see you coming brilliant. home. They're so brilliant. Kids are amazing creatures and they really understand the environment that they're in. And so to deny them the opportunity to understand what's happening is actually quite a disservice that you're doing to the kid. Once you're hitting mid and late adolescence as well, that's actually going to be more, the onus is more on the parent to ask the question. Because at that time, they're really going through like literally psychosocial development. They're going through body changes. There's a lot happening in parallel during those um, stages of development that make a a lot of children kind of internalize and go into themselves. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. They'll Google real quick. You would be amazed the things that my patients have Googled and be like, doctor, I think I have this. And this is why. And I was like, you're correct, actually. And I am impressed that you got there. But like, I think it's just one of these things. Like they're not going to run to their parents to mommy anymore because they want to form their identity and they want their autonomy. And so as a parent, it's absolutely crucial that you go to them, say, hey, how are you feeling? Have you been feeling down lately? And I think these are important. Have have there been new stressors? Because school by far is, if I ask my kids, what's the number one stress? It's school. And it, it comes from different angles, but it's school, just like flat out. And then it's usually like school followed by home life, right? Managing, if I'm a five person family and we only have two or one bedroom home, nobody has space to do their work. There's a six year old trying to do their work. There's a baby screaming over here. And I'm like a 17 year old that's trying to focus and has like migraines already, right? So how do you manage in these situations? I think doctors as well are kind of, are the people that, provide that wraparound care. So we ourselves have to be more alert and attuned to asking questions like this. Like literally, how, like we, so at part of adolescence, we have this HEADS assessment and the first HEAD, the first mm-hmm. part of that acronym is H for home. And you're like, who lives with you at home? And people will get that. And you're like, is the relationship, uh, what's the relationship like? And they end there. But really it's like, who lives at home? Okay, you said six people live at home. How many bedrooms do you have? Do you have access to a kitchen? Do you have access to a bathroom? Imagine as a teen boy, just really going through these different processes, not having a room to yourself, right? That's something that some people in other places might think is normal, but in New York City, it's not normal for you to have your own room if you have multiple other siblings. Mm -hmm. How do you have the personal space to develop on your own? And so as physicians, we really do have to spend some extra time asking questions. What is your relationship like with your parents? Do you trust them? When you are stressed, who do you go to? That is a key question I ask every time. And it's now part of our note format because it's so important. If there's nobody that they go to, then they are missing a key protective mechanism for, for them. And that's when as a physician, I'm like, okay, 
who can I help you engage with in order to be somebody to make sure that you are that you feel safe and that you feel like you have a resource when times are, are tough. So I think for parents, it's all about transparency, support. You don't have to give too much detail about your current situation, but your kids are aware that there are stressors. And so being able to talk to them openly and engage them is going to be very critical throughout this time. When it comes to uh, going back to sort of the technology and we we talked about the influence or really the role in social media and all of this, uh, prior Mm -hmm. to even the onset of the pandemic, uh, online bullying was a huge issue. Have we seen any changes in that uh, recently with the, you know, in the COVID era, especially as we're spending more time online or more time on these uh, digital platforms? Yeah. So um, there, ha- I think it seems like it manifests itself differently. Um, they don't have the data for that per se. I can say anecdotally, it seems to actually be about equivalent. Um, I find that my, the, the patients that I see are very savvy. And so they're able to, one, identify bullying, which I don't feel like was as well understood by teens before, and two, kind of circumvent it. Um, now, sometimes they can understand when a relationship is actually toxic, and that's a whole other situation in itself. But for the ones that have that insight, they are actually pretty much circumventing bullying. And I think a lot of that helps because you're not coming to school the next day. I think the part of social media bullying that had the most power was that somebody can say something online, spread something about you, and then you go to school and then it continues to perpetuate whatever was discussed. That element is broken. And so because of that, it doesn't have the same power. So now is the is the bullying coming more from people at home now then? So that is definitely an element. Who you live with is absolutely critical. And that experience, I have a a patient that really is just having a terrible time at home because their mother is fixating on her body. Um, And this, I've heard much more than I had previously. And I think once again, parents are trying to cope. And the way that parents may cope may not be the healthiest of strategies for themselves or their children. And so I definitely think from home or from possibly even the circles of friends that they are seeing in person. So, you know, in New York City and also in other places, like the the teens are still seeing their friends in some context if they're allowed to leave the home. I have some teens whose parents will not let them leave the home. But those that are leaving, they do see some friends, but it's a smaller group. So it's interesting because I don't hear as much bullying. Like there, it, it seems like it's a self-selecting group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in home, for sure. That's super interesting. And and to not have anywhere to go, if that is the case, is probably even more right. uh, damaging. And, and I'm sure the weight that they place on those relationships and those opinions of them um, mm-hmm. definitely doesn't help yeah. the situation either. Uh, so is there anything other than being more cognizant and asking more questions that we could do to kind of uh, prevent issues from from escalating and being able to address them uh, mm-hmm. in a more preventative way and, and, and build better relationships? I think one key thing that can be done is the idea of centering. It's actually having groups of teens and peers meet virtually to engage around different topics. I actually think, and different topics that affect their wellness, their health, and I don't, it shouldn't be a large group, it should be a small group, but really to allow them different outlets. Because what happens is at school, you had one friend that you did this with, another friend you did that with, right? And now you're kind of limited to either being with the people in your home or that that one group of friends that you're able to see out. Mm-hmm. So to give that diversity of network that they need just to grow, to understand people, relationships, different things along those lines, I actually think there should be more efforts from some um, nonprofit groups, from medical groups that are really allowing teens to come together. The New York Presbyterian Hospital has something called the Adolescent Hub. And pre-COVID, it was really a, a place where people could come get legal services, job services, tutoring, GED. Then they had all t- different types of groups based on your interests. And so they've converted some of those to online. And I think that has been very helpful for many of our patients because they have 
have other people to talk to. They can learn from their peers and they can bring up topics that are relevant to all of them. And so I think that's um, something that's definitely uh, an area where we could really start doing more preventative work rather than trying to treat issues as they come up. Currently, the approach really, I think everybody's just trying to keep their head above water. So I really would say the approach is more like dealing with just the issues as they come. But I do worry that when your safety net is not home and you're stuck at home, mm. what does that mean for you? So I, I have a, a recent yeah. patient who was so excited about going to college because she was finally going to get freed of her home. And now she can't. And we worry about her, right? And I have another patient who had a similar situation just moved out with a, a boyfriend that she met. So it was like the people are making decisions, right? Based upon being conf confined with certain uh, people in their family um, or people that are within their, their immediate network. And that I think makes it really hard. And, and so we move on and, uh, you know, talk about what the other aspect of, of this program really, which is really talking about suicide uh, in and of itself, um, mm -hmm. how do we begin to broach that topic? Um, because you said that really uh, um, one of the, the points of advice you really gave was, that, right, this is something that we definitely need to um, touch upon. In addition to being open and discussing some of the other issues and challenges that we've talked about and having this open dialogue with our children, um, one of them is to you know, bring this up. And so how do you recommend sort of one, you know, even bringing this up and, and also um, if we can even get to how do you even recognize this as a real risk for um, a, a child in your home? So I think it is a very tough, tough subject because it's hard for any of us and to understand, to process. And it's scary because that is the second most uh, common cause of death amongst teens. Right. And so although we want to ignore it, although it makes us uncomfortable. It is a it is a very harsh reality that we have to address because by not addressing it, we're actually really contributing to these outcomes. And that scares me. That's what terrifies me. And so as uncomfortable as I, I always remember as a medical student asking these questions, have you ever thought about ending your life? Have you ever wished you didn't wake up in the morning? Those questions to ask someone were so uncomfortable. But the reason that it was uncomfortable is because I didn't want to hear an answer that was affirmative. Because when I got that answer that was affirmative, what do I do? And it has taken me two years of fellowship and you know three years of residency to really get comfortable with like, okay, you're expressing this to me. Now let's figure out the next steps. And I think if that took me that long as a clinician, I can't imagine what it's like for a parent. So if I were to think of key steps and strategies, I think for parents, the first thing is to identify if they feel as if their children are not like themselves. That can mean very different things for different people. But really, one of the key things we're looking at is complete like disconnection from typical family members that they were speaking to, even, you know, as things shifted to online or as things shifted in the home, the parents are usually keen on identifying what are the, the, the changes that are happening, seeing if they are more. Like the interactions are mm -hmm. different in some way, the interactions between family and. Yeah. yeah. If seeing if they're more withdrawn. Um, I think as we mentioned earlier, angry outbursts, really having a difficult time articulating themselves. If you notice that they're becoming a little bit more um, obsessive about different things or really focused, um, uh, you see like a nervous, I always, I describe anxiety more as like this nervous energy that you can sometimes see in kids where they're just like, they're moving just all the time. They can't sit still. It's really hard for them to focus and not in a way that's more typical of like a younger kid, but something that is atypical for that patient themselves. I think those are some key signs. Also looking at who they're hanging out with, if they are allowed to go outside, and if they're using any type of new substances. Um, you know, I think the you're at home, and so in some homes, like alcohol use might be normal for teens. And so are they using it? Are they actually using alcohol? Are they smoking weed? Are they adding additives to the weed? So in New York, a common additive is tobacco to the weed. So, you know, all of these different components to kind of note these behavioral changes because those behavioral changes will give you a sign into 
the the current emotional state of your child. Um, but so I do think those are some of the signs to look for. I think the other things though to look for as well, or other things to keep in mind about um, about trying to identify this in your children is really taking the opportunity to ask the question explicitly. And I think that's a hard thing to think about, but I think it's an important thing to think about. So how do you explicitly ask a child about suicide? I think it has a lot to do with their age range, but I think the simplest way um, is to start out saying, have you been feeling really down lately? So really kind of asking about their general emotional state. And then from there, the, and, and if the parent wants to give their insight, I've noticed that you're, you're, you've had these changes and I'm concerned about you. Because I think when you come in from the element and the focus of concern, it changes, not concern to be punitive, but genuine concern, it changes the environment to be a bit more receptive to your child disclosing if there are concerns. And then I think the next steps are, have you thought about hurting yourself? Because there's different elements and steps, but there are some kids who, due to their own emotional and psychic pain and anxiety, will cut themselves. And they're not cutting themselves to kill themselves, but they're hurt. They're cutting themselves to feel pain because there's some relief that comes with actual cutting. So often these children will do this on their arms, on their inner thighs and their legs, places where they can hide it. And so I think asking of them about, are, have you thought about hurting yourself? Um, have you thought about ending your life? And I think that's the easiest way. Suicide is such a heavy word. It's, um, it's, just, it's mm-hmm. unfortunately stigmatized and it's just pregnant with so much emotion. But actually saying ending your life is a bit different because it can, that can put you down different roads. It can be thinking about have you ever thought of actively doing something or have you kind of, you know, wish you just didn't wake up the next day? I think asking those questions are important and your kid may brisk at the, they might be uncomfortable with it, but I think if you have given them a forum and you continue to allow that forum to exist, then I think it can be particularly useful for the children. And I think what's more important is that what if the kid says yes? What do you do as a parent? So I think the there's different ways to get LinkedIn. For New York City, there's the New York City Well line, and they have something called Mobile Crisis. And Mobile Crisis will actually come to your home and assess the patient. And I think that is a powerful tool that New York City has had pre-COVID and now post-COVID, and I've had to utilize for my patients. Um, that is very helpful. I think- What's the name again? I'm sorry. New York City Well. It's um, it is, yeah, see, New York City Well Mobile Crisis. It is, um, it's just like a tool of the Department of Health, I believe. Um, and, and they have and Dr. Anderson. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna ask, at what point do you um, kind of draw the line and say, I need to get professional help versus I need to be a good mm-hmm. friend or family member and just listen and kind of try and, and assess or, or allow them to vent? I think giving the, if the patient is in your presence and there are no lethal means of killing themselves at that time, if the patient wants to vent, or not the patient, if the parent, the kid, I'm sorry, I'm always making patient language, but if the a child or adolescent wants to vent, allowing them that opportunity is good and, and kind of giving them just like the space. But I think if there's anything within that, venting session within that ex- time of expression that is of concern to you, that is when you should engage professional help. But I think immediately, if any type of thoughts of hurting themselves have come up, professional help should be engaged. The question is, when do you go to the emergency department versus not? I think if a, if you are worried that the patient is not safe at that immediate time and will not be safe in the next six hours, they should go to the emergency department. Because um, the idea is like, how do we get them safely engaged into care immediately? Um, I've had patients wait, and then the poor parents are sleeping with them every night because they're so fearful something could happen, and wait to see me on the next day. And I'm like, oh gosh, like 
there are there are other resources. And so that's the other reason why I really strongly believe in if you're having a difficult time, if like uh, people are scared to go to the emergency department right now, unfortunately. But if that is worrisome for you, then you can use the New York City well line, at least in New York. And many states have this option so that you can talk to somebody fairly immediately to guide your next steps. And I think that's absolutely critical. So for an example, I had a patient who expressed it to me via message in our in our system. And I was like, okay. And I call and I say, hey, you have to go to the emergency department. I'm very worried about you. I care about you. And she said, I, I'm not going. And we tried and we tried. She said, I'm not going. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to send people to you. And so within four hours, mobile crisis was there, met with her. They've continued to meet with her. And then she's going to be linked into a psychiatrist and a therapist long term. So to me, like, that's the most beautiful implementation of a system that I've seen. Um, but that is an option need be. And I think more people in New York need to just be aware of it. Yes. And one thing I, I do want to say is that, you know, the emergency department, even during these times, um, it is among the safer places, I would argue, it is on the planet. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that broadly of any emergency department. One, right, they're open 24-7. Um, uh, even if they don't have a psychiatrist on site, there are emergency physicians there. There are mm-hmm. practitioners, nurse practitioners, uh, other advanced practice providers, such as physician assistants. Somebody there, I can guarantee you, somebody there will be able to see you and make sure, um, or your loved one, and make sure that they are safe and that they can, if, if they don't have the appropriate staff on site, they will get somebody there or get them to a exactly. place where they can be seen. Um, and exactly. uh, emergency departments are taking measures or have taken measures to make sure that we minimize the chances of anybody acquiring um, COVID-19. Um, just to really you know, try our best to really um, minimize that fear so that people can get the help that they need. But also, um, thank you, uh, Dr. Anderson Burnett, for really just bringing up the, the New York City Well um, site. And I actually got to it. I Googled it and it came up in seconds. Um, it is NYC uh, well. well, so NYC well, one word, dot city of New York, that's one word, dot US. And they actually have a text line, so you can text well to 65173. Um, and in this way, you'll be sort of linked up to a provider that will help you navigate and, and figure out um, uh, how best to approach your problem. You can also call 1 888 NYC well and also to even have a chat feature so if you log in online you can just chat with with uh, a provider yeah um, and they also have like apps sure. that you can utilize um i think people sometimes get so um they're like oh that's such a you know a silly thing why would i do mindfulness why would i do um different types of meditation but they actually also have apps that can help introduce it, introduce you to some of these concepts that can be helpful um and then one other resource that i would also um, recommend is from dr byron young um he has a website called i believe it's called we doing it well i will find it and send it to you um but it is a fantastic website that also has resources for how do you engage particularly communities of color and folks that have had different experiences with meditation, with mindfulness, with different approaches to help with anxiety, because we're all experiencing it in many ways. And I think that's what's probably important for parents to be able to express to their children is normalizing the fact that the world is literally a dumpster fire right now, right? Like, it's like this is not an experience that we've ever had before, ever. We're all anxious. And I, I really, I, I find like that normalization within the home can actually transform what that environment is like for a team. Because now they're like, okay, I, I see, You're, you, you feel it too. Because sometimes what happens is they think they're going through it alone. So Dr. Anderson, I just had one last question. Uh, you brought up an acronym earlier that started with an H. Yes. Uh, do you mind just repeating that? I didn't catch it. Yeah, it's called the HEADS assessment, and it's part of our psychosocial assessment of um, teenage adolescent patients. And I usually start that at around age 11, 10 or 11. And the H is for head, I mean, home. The E is for education. A is for activities. D is for drugs, depression. They kind of like loop everything in there. S is for sex, sexuality. It's also kind of reproductive health as well as um, uh, concerns about safety and suicidality. 
Um, so that's what it is. It's the HEADS acronym. People, they use it different ways. There's also shades. It's essentially moving it around different ways because one of the S's is strengths. And I think so often, and I think this is an important element to bring up, so often we don't ask teens what their strengths are, right? So a teen comes in the office and you're worried about, you doing drugs? You're sexually active? <laughs> like, like, mm. like yeah. and, and they're like, okay, great. You know, like you're more than your- you're, It's an interview. It's a full <laughs> interview. Like you're more than your gender, you're more than your sexuality, you're more than whatever drugs you choose to use. Like what are your strengths? And what's so sad to me, but like also I think about it with adults too. Like it's so hard for them to mention their strengths. And they can't figure it out. They they haven't even taken the time to be able to think about it. And and I think that that's painful to see sometimes because I know there's so many other social determinants of health. And so medical care is this one little part of the social determinants of health that also have like overarching economics, policies, where they live, their homes, their housing situation. There's so many elements that contribute to this person that's sitting in front of you. And so often we're only focusing on these other elements and they can't even see their own strengths. And so I, I really believe in the empowerment of adolescents. I believe for them to become functional adults that will transform society and then next be our next leaders, they have to know that they matter, number one, that they are a powerful people yeah. and that we care about them and we want them to be alive. And so if they know that, then they know that they have somebody, some place to go to that they could depend on. And that place could be the parents, that is ideal. But if that's not the case, then there are adults, there are other resources that are there to make sure that we can help facilitate that process. And and speaking of that, you know, just uh, piggybacking off of these strengths, what are the factors that really promote resilience mm-hmm. in children um, during this time and really at, at any time? You know, what are some of the things that that I guess parents can do or that we know sort of contribute to children just uh, sort of being more resilient? when faced with challenges uh, such as what's happening now? I think really building resilience is a, it's a tough thing to try to do. I think it's really hard, right? Like how do you, how do you allow, I think building resilience really takes, uh, it takes a community and it, and it takes people believing in the inherent goodness and potential and opportunity that lie in a team. I really think that's the first step in building resilience because they have to first visualize themselves as active members and citizens of society, as people that are contributing to the good of this world. That, you know, building resilience is really kind of in that framework of building a the autonomy and, and, and encouraging that individuation of um, of adolescence. And so ways that we encourage that are actually to be positive with adolescents. Once again, I think kind of harkens back to what I was just saying, like not focusing on all of the quote unquote negative or noxious elements of puberty and adolescent development, but actually rather enhancing the elements that are positive. The fact that they're changing, that they're making decisions about their lives, that they're making smart decisions about their lives, you know, really Framing the language differently. I think the it's actually something I've become way more conscientious about having after having a child myself is that some of the things we say are negative and we don't even know know that right and we're we're just saying it. You're not thinking about it, but like my husband and I laugh all the time because we're always like hashtag language matters because we'll say something, we'll hear it, and we're like, why would we say that? That doesn't make sense, right? We can we can change this and be like, I really appreciate you doing that for me, rather than why you did that? Like, that's like the first reaction, you know? And so how do you, how do you as, it, it takes a little bit, I think building resilience takes a little bit of a savvy of the parent and also like their own, kind of like their own development in, in a way. But I, I really think the, the first step is to, use opportunities to highlight that that kids and that adolescents assets and what their uh, attributes are i think that's like the first step um and then going from there is really kind of going back to that original point of guiding like how do you guide them to make decisions that are overall healthy for them and that once again that means something different for everybody so I think that it's like, I think it's hard to do as a parent because you're also like very invested in your child. <laughs> but at the same time, um, it's important to see the positive. And, and Dr. Anderson, how can we improve the mm-hmm. self-worth? Like how, how can we mm-hmm. support, uh, 
you know, identity building and, and, uh, you know, valid, like yeah. self-valuation. I think one of the key things is really, Sorry, that's a tough one. I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's hard, but it, you know, I, there's actually a, um, there is a pediatrician out of CHOP named Dr. Kenneth Ginsberg, who actually wrote a book on building resilience in children and teens. And I actually think it's a, it, it teaches very useful co um, concepts that I've utilized throughout my practice. And one of the things that he talks about is really focusing on building the seven crucial C's. So it's competence, confidence, connection, character, contribution, coping, and control, right? So the idea behind that is that in order to boost their confidence, give them something that they can feel confident about, right? So so often we're, we're accustomed in our society to boosting a kid off of their looks or different things like that, because that seems normal. But really, if a kid is into coding, really building their confidence in coding, giving them opportunities to learn more about coding, opportunities to be around like-minded people that are interested in that, and really showing them what that means to contribute uh, to society based on this interest that they have, right? You really kind of find what piques their interest and then cultivate it and support it. And I think those are the ways that you build confidence because building things, confidence in things that could be fleeting like looks is not going to be things that sustain them. But knowing that they have attributes that are, are elements of themselves that are worth highlighting is so important. And so even when like, my patients come in and they're talking and they're really down. And I'll say, you know, I'm so impressed with your insight about your your illness and what you've been experiencing. And they're like, wait, what do you what do you mean? Like they're shocked by the fact that somebody is actually saying something positive. But I'm saying this because I think it's truly impressive to me how some teens can navigate their emotions better than adults. And I'm like, this is a big deal. And I know you don't see it, but I see it. And so just simple validation actually makes a huge difference. And so that's why I think language matters. Of course, there are going to be times where your teens do something and you are concerned about their safety and you might, you will have to have a discussion that may be punitive. But I think when we reframe our discussions overall into giving them some sense of control about what's going on in their lives, because once again, I think we often forget they're going through puberty. And I know some people forgot what their puberty was like, but like, I was like, I remember my puberty. I remember my younger brother's puberty. That was enough for me, right? Like, It's not fun. And you're going through so many changes and to have somebody hounding you and not highlighting the parts of you that are really wonderful and things that you're showcasing can be very frustrating. So I think it's simple validation. It is simple, positive talk that can make a tremendous um, impact. And th that starts from toddler. That starts from very, very young. And there's data that shows that like, if you continue to sow into patients, into kids like that, they really grow into confident adults that know their self-worth. And that that's really what's going to matter. And that's really what's going to help build resilience. Thank you for that. Yeah. Wow. So, we, all right. I promise you one day we got to do because that's like a whole show in it in and of itself in a way. But um, but thank yeah. you for for really just helping us uh, uh, at least get a lead way, you know, into into um, doing that because it only helps with everything that we've discussed uh, thus far, especially um, during this challenging time with COVID. Dr. Anderson Burnett, I want to thank you once again. And ladies, just of note, it's actually like Friday evening, and Dr. Anderson <laughs> Burnett. Um, you know, took time out of her, her busy schedule to really just share this time with us um, because she's that passionate about what she does um, for our for our children. And so I want to thank you very much um, for that. And it's always a great uh, uh, pleasure um, working with you. And, you know, we always are welcoming you to the show. Always. <laughs> like, thank you. Y'all just send me an email. <laughs> And also, I want to thank uh, Reed and Giorgio and the rest of the Health and Harlem team. Um, just going to get some great information out there. And so it's always good to see you guys as well. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, we also want to uh, wish uh, Angela Hardin, the general manager of WHCR, a very uh, happy birthday, extremely happy birthday uh, this February 12th. And we just celebrate her. And also, we just want to shout out 
uh, Tina Dixon as well, the production manager of WHCR. We couldn't have anything going on um, on that station without them. Uh, and also just shout out to the rest of the WHCR family. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, as always, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourselves.